You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We're not going to mess around this morning. Uh, we can't afford to mess around any time during this series because we're trying to cover a whole book uh, from week to week. And even a little book like Joel uh, requires a lot of getting through. So if you open up, we're going to start right at the beginning. And we're going to be introduced to this guy, Joel, in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So Joel, or Joel, is uh, is a guy that's been called by God to speak God's word to God's people. And his name means Yahweh is God. Literally, just God is God. Uh, And that's part of the message he has for his people, is to remember that Yahweh is God. These foreign gods, these gods, these idols are not God, but Yahweh is God alone. And a couple of interesting things about his little book. Um, First of all, we don't know when it was written. Uh, There's really no clue in the text. Normally in these minor prophets, they'll talk about the reign of this or that king, and so it puts in a historical context for us. Um, Joel doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us the kings. Some people think it's because he wants his book to be applicable across generations and for different seasons and times. Uh, That could be true. It could also be because there aren't any kings. So if it's true, and I think it is, that this actually takes place after the exile of God's people. Remember last, last week Hosea prophesied that the Assyrians would come in, destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, exile the people to Assyria. Well, this is probably taking place after that has happened when the people have resettled back in Israel. And so it's in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah that this is going on, probably. And so that's probably why he doesn't mention a king, but he does mention uh, Jerusalem and the temple and so on. So that puts it in a little bit of historical context if you're a Bible geek like me. The other thing about um, this book is that um, it's similar to all the other prophets in that Joel prophesies God's judgment on his people for their sin, but the weird thing is that he doesn't mention any specific sin. He doesn't say, like Hosea last week, he doesn't talk about the worship of Baal or, you know, or sexual um, uh, indiscretion. He, he, he just says, God's judgment is coming against your sin and leaves it at that. Um, and probably the reason for this is that Joel knows his Bible really well, and he expects you to know it well as well. So he, he knows it well enough that in, this, in three chapters, he quotes, just of the prophets, he quotes Amos, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Obadiah, and Malachi, and, and quotes them from their text. So he, he knows his Bible really well. So he knows, because he's read the prophets and likely memorized them, he knows the sin of the people, and he expects the people to know their sin, and he expects us to know the prophets and to know the sin of the people, and he expects us to know this. The sins of the people of Israel are the same sins that we deal with and contend with day to day, right? Thousands of years doesn't change the human heart. We experience and struggle with these same things, and so it's worth us knowing the Bible like he does so that we can contend with the reality of our sinfulness before God. The thing this really intimate knowledge of the Bible does for Joel, and will do for us if we if we soak ourselves in God's Word. The the thing that it does for him is that equips him to speak God's truth to God's people. So he's just, he's got Bible all up in his mind that he can speak and apply to the people in their context. 
We know prophets do this by direct inspiration of God, but he's got both the Old Testament prophet thing happening where God just speaks through his mouth, and he's got the New Testament prophet thing happening where the, the, the gift of prophecy is to apply God's word to this contemporary circumstance. So that's what it will do for you. I make no promises that God speaks directly through you. In all likelihood, he won't. But we should all eagerly desire, as Paul says, the gift of prophecy, that is, to be able to walk into a situation, to be able to walk into Pedro's hospital room this afternoon and say, here's here's some of God's word for you. Here's some of God's word to encourage you in this particular circumstance you find yourself in. You will get that if you sink yourself into God's Word, where He promises to reveal Himself to you. you. You then will be able to reveal Him to others. The other thing it does for Him, apart from equipping Him to speak, is that it gives Him a hope that transcends His circumstances. Right? As far as it looks on the surface of things, Joel's got no reason to hope for anything. The people have been disciplined by God in their conquering and exile. They've come back and they keep doing the same things. It's like hopeless. And yet, Joel has this hope for the future that he would not have unless he knew God's promises from his word. That will do the same thing for you. Even when your circumstances seem really dark, you will have little treasures tucked away in your heart, given to you by God's revealed word, that will be able to give you hope that transcends, right, your circumstances. Two really good reasons for us to jump in and see what God has for us in this book. So let's do that now. Just by way of kind of structure, trying to understand these books, I'll try and do this from week to week to to the degree that it's helpful, but the first two chapters of Joel are considered... what was I trying to say? The first two chapters of, of Joel um, have like one central theme to them, and, and it's this, the day of the Lord. That's the big heading over the first two chapters, the day of the Lord. And, and this is a day that's really important to the, to the Hebrew mind, their understanding of God and themselves, the day of the Lord. And for Joel, this day of the Lord can be a past event where God showed up and demonstrated his power for his people, Anything come to mind from your Old Testament history or last year's preaching program? Exodus, yes, we got there. All right, uh, Exodus is like a day of the Lord. God turns up, demonstrates his power, his sovereignty over creation, his sovereignty over the gods of Egypt and the deliverance of his people. So that's like a day of the Lord in the past. Joel, in the first chapter, refers to another day of the Lord, which is in the very recent past. Like, we don't know when it is. It might have been last week for them. It certainly was in the lifetime of the people that he's speaking to. And it's this, this event um, of, a, of a great locust plague. And he references this in verse 2 and following. Check this out. He says, Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So he says this, this, this plague 
that has devastated us. This is like a day of the Lord. And, and in their minds, the people obviously would have thought of the great plague of locusts that God had sent in the Exodus against the people of Egypt. The, the devastating difference here is that this plague of locusts was a curse sent by God, not against the people of Egypt, but against his own people. That they themselves are receiving God's judgment and justice. And he says, Joel says, it has been utterly devastating. I don't know if you've ever been, like, been anywhere near a locust plague, but I remember as a kid distinctly driving to my uncle's farm in Albury, and my dad had to pull over and wait for just the clouds of locusts to pass because they had just smeared the windscreen so we couldn't see anymore. Just devastation, and there's nothing you can do about it. They are unstoppable trillions and trillions of these insects that seem to come up out of nowhere and absolutely destroy the landscape. And if you are living in an agrarian society where if you don't grow it, you don't eat it, I mean, that's like the end of the world. So he says, this, this day of the Lord, this, this, this is a judgment of God on you for your sin, for your waywardness, for your rebellion. That's the past day of the Lord. And his response, Joel's response to this is a prophetic call to repentance. You're just going to see this over and over and over again in this series, right? The prophets, their like main job is to call people to repentance. If you don't know what that is, it's, just a, it's, it's a technical term for this. I'm walking this way away from God. I'm walking this way in habitual, ongoing sin. To repent is to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. It's to leave that behind. It's to stop following my own fleshly desires and to start following Jesus. It's stop making life all about me and start making life all about Him. That's what repentance is. And so He, he, gives, he, he, he sounds this alarm, He sounds this call to the people of God to repent Check it out, verse 13 and 14, he says, of chapter 1. He says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. The right response to coming to terms with sin, the kind of sin that arouses God's anger, the right response to that is to repent, to lament, to grieve, to ask for God's mercy and grace. And this is what he calls the, the elders, the leaders, the priests of Israel to do. And he includes himself in it, right? In verse 19, he says, I'm calling out to God as well. And this is a great thing because what you hear sometimes when you get those, those, guys, those self-appointed prophets who are always really sweaty and red in the face, you know, like denouncing this or that cultural evil and saying God, this is God bringing God's judgment, you very really hear, rarely hear them repenting on behalf of themselves, for their waywardness and sin. So it comes across as utter self-righteousness. That's not the way of God's prophets. Joel says, I have a part to play, not only in calling out sin, but in repenting of it. 
so he says, repent, repent, fast, wail, pray. And you see throughout the history of Israel these really powerful times where people come to terms with their sin, respond with repentance, and God responds with mercy and grace. And it's not just biblical history. This has happened in, in even modern times. I don't have time to go into it now, but Google the, the miracle of Dunkirk. They made a movie about it recently, but um, that's the title that Winston Churchill gave that event where you had like... I said I couldn't go into it, but I'm going to anyway, right? They had about 300,000 Allied soldiers who were just about to get smashed by Hitler and his armies. They were completely isolated and just, like, it it was just a matter of time before they were wiped out. The, the, The British government called the people to repentance, fasting and repentance. And the churches and cathedrals were overflowing with people who were praying for these 300,000 boys who were about to get slaughtered. What happened in response was a very weird series of events where, wherein like um, Hitler, for some reason, had, he, he took a three-day break from pursuing the conquering of these 300,000 people. His, apparently his own officers were like incensed at his stupidity. Why, why wait three days to go and kill them? Just do it now. It's easy. They're just they're there for the taking. Um, the, the weather turned really bad. Um, the, the alarm bells were ringing, and um, the, the, the weather turned really bad all of a sudden, so bad, unseasonably bad, that the Luftwaffe, were, you know, the, the German Air Force that was going to go and destroy them, couldn't take off from the, from the airport. And then, once the, the, the British Army called on the people of, anyone who could, to go and help these people, I think they had... Uh, some great number of ships that were, you know, fishing ships, any kind of vessel that could go, would go and try and rescue these guys. And as soon as they made that call, the weather died and the, sea, the seas were calm for the period of time to go and pick these guys up. And, you know, just one miracle after another happened. And in Churchill's own mind, it was a miracle of God's grace in response to a nation that was fasting and praying for his mercy. So this is not, this is not just, well, this happened in the Old Testament. Did it really? I mean, it does. And we've seen in our own church, in our own time, fasting and prayer kind of stir up a response from God, um, sort of ignite his compassion and his mercy for his people. And so I don't know why, I, like Monica probably has a different experience in South Sudanese community, but in the, in the Western church, we kind of stopped doing fasting for some reason. I don't know, I don't know who told us to stop, um, but it, I think it should form the, the, a, part, a very real part of our experience of discipleship. Um, we can talk more about that some other time. I'm, I've gone off track. The people repented, and they actively repented and wailed and fasted in response to this plague sent by God himself in judgment on them. The second chapter of Joel, he's not concerned with a past or even recent past day of the Lord, but he's talking, he's, he, he switches gears, and he doesn't really tell us he, he does it, so it makes it a bit tricky, but he, he definitely switches gears to a future day of the Lord. And this day of the Lord is like apocalyptic in its scope. This is like a day of the Lord that is coming to end all days. And so he has... He uses kind of the same poetic um, meter and rhythm and form that he used when describing the locusts. 
And when he starts talking about this day of the Lord in the second chapter, it sounds like he might be talking about another locust plague, but then it turns out this plague is not of locusts, but of soldiers, of horses, of armies, and they are God's armies gathering to pour out God's wrath on his own people. So he, let me just read a little bit for you. I'll, I'll, read a, I'll read a chunk of it and just see what you make of it. He says in uh, chapter 2, in verse 1 to 5, he said, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them. Through the years of all generations, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden, before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. This is a picture, an image of a coming day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord. The massing of God's armies, like a plague of locusts. The sun is dark and the, the earth quakes. It's this very apocalyptic vision of the end of all things. And here's the bottom line. No one can escape from it. It is all consuming. So he says in, in verse 11 of chapter 2, he says, The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now you need to hear that great and very awesome like out of our context because you know, you see someone's got a new pair of shoes and you say, wow, that's awesome. They're, they're just, that's an awesome pair of shoes. That's not what he's talking about. This is like the real meaning of awesome, like awe-inspiring, like flattening, like on your face on the ground, awesome. He says that's what it's like when God masses his armies. It is great and very awesome. And his response to this coming day of the Lord is exactly the same as his response to the last. He calls on his people, repent, repent, repent of your rebellion, repent of your sin, return to the Lord. And, and crucially, what he's talking about here is a certain kind of repentance. And this is what we've got to get our, our mind around, right? So in verse 12, this is what God says, right? Even, even at the darkest hour, when his wrath is about to be unleashed, he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. That's, that really hit me this week when I read that. Rend your hearts, not your garments. What Joel knows is there's a kind of outward repentance which assuages our guilt and makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves, but does nothing to change our hearts. Right? Every kid knows this. I got my kid on the thinking spot because he's hit his mum. And I say to him, 
it's unacceptable to hit your mum. You've sinned against God and against her. And you need to apologize to her. And he runs along and goes, I'm sorry. And what he's doing there is just getting himself off the thinking spot, right? And, and we laugh at the kids for doing that. We're exactly the same. We're prone to just want to get ourselves off God's thinking spot, say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, and um, read the prayer, and then, you know, forgive us our sins, and we forgive those who sin against us. And what that is doing is you're rendering, you're rending, you're tearing your garments, not your hearts. And, and Joel knew his people were prone to that. Make the sacrifice, do the service, move on. And, and, it, and it affected no change. And it will affect no change in us either. What God wants is a genuine, heartfelt grief over sin. Which means, we, first of all, we need to understand what it is. And fundamentally what it is, is treason against our Lord. What it does is arouses His anger and just wrath against us. And so Joel's response should be the same for us. It is genuine, heartfelt repentance, rendering our, rending our hearts, not merely our, our garments. This is exactly what Paul had in mind. Remember it, for the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7, this is what he says. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a kind of grief, a kind of repentance that produces death because it does nothing for us spiritually. It's just a, a, a kind of rehearsal of guilt-assuaging ritual. But... There is a grief, a godly grief, that produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So, godly grief producing repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Regret. Why is it without regret? Why can't I say that word? Why is it without regret? Because godly grief reminds us, when it leads to repentance, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection is powerful enough to replace my treasonous actions with his perfect righteousness. And therefore, I can live without regret, knowing that all of my stupid, insane, treasonous decisions have been replaced with his perfect righteousness. That's the difference, and it's a world of difference between rending garments and rending hearts. The other thing he does when he talks about calling the people to repentance and genuine repentance, he, he gives them the right motivation or the deepest motivation for them to repent. So I wonder how you experience this. Right? When you're convicted of sin, especially when it's that sin, you keep tripping over over and over again. What motivates you to repentance? Is it that God's anger is aroused in response to your sin? 
I sat under the preaching of someone just last month who said from the front, God is not angered by your sin. I was like, well, I better just tear out half my Bible then, unless you've got an updated version that doesn't have that in it. God's anger is aroused, not just by my sin, but by all injustice everywhere, by the very brokenness of the world. His anger is aroused by my sin, and that contributes part of my motivation for repentance, but Joel gives them the most powerful and profound reason to repent, and that is, he says, consider God's very nature. Check it out, verse 13. Let's go back to 12. So, he says, Yet even now, at the darkest hour, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. He says, return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He says the most powerful, profound thing that you can consider as you go to repent is to remember that God is a gracious God. That means He extends unmerited favor to us. He forgives us in spite of us, not because of us. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That means never-ending love. And so he says to us, I think, on that basis, we ought to come before God in repentance. Not doing away with the fact that he's angered by our sin, but coming to him on the basis that his mercy overpowers his wrath. Now, my experience of repentance is that in, that in that moment where you're confronted with your sin, your brokenness, that there's, there's a couple of voices that normally speak. And so you just put yourself in this situation. If you're a Christian here this morning, and let's, let's say it's, it's that sin that, you, that, that gets you every time. It's that sin that you find the hardest to resist. It's that sin that seems to cause you to stumble over and again. It's that habitual thing that you, you think you, at times you're never going to be able to overcome. When, when, you, when you fall into that sin, and that makes it sound passive, no, when you commit that sin... There's a couple of voices that normally speak. Here's the voices. Two voices, the father of lies and the word of truth. The father of lies, as you know, is Satan. Here's what he might say. You've failed again. You deserve God's condemnation. Don't bother going back to him now. He's done with you. You've exhausted his grace, right? He... he, 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 he's been forgiving you up until this point. Now you've, you've used all your tokens. You've exhausted his grace. He's, he's so over you. The father of lies. Now the word of truth. 
You failed again. You deserve God's condemnation. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word of truth. And you need to battle to have the word of truth turned up and the father of lies turned down and shut down. You know what I think the mark of a mature Christian is when it comes to these things? It's not sinlessness. There isn't a Christian who's going to get to that point. It's not sinlessness. It's when you sin, how do you respond? The mature Christian responds by running as fast as they can to the Father. Running to Him. Remembering that He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in never-ending steadfast love. That's what the mature Christian does. The immature Christian does an Adam and Eve. Go and hide in the garden. Pretend this didn't happen. Cover it up. Try and forget it. Move on right? And in so doing, they experience zero transformation. So, one of the reasons you might be, and this is a might, one of the the reasons you might be experiencing that ongoing habitual sin that you keep stumbling over is because when it happens, you go and run and hide yourself with leaves rather than returning to the Lord your God who is merciful and gracious. That's why my favorite part of the Bible is Jesus' parable of the lost son. I just see myself over and over again in the pigsty and then that moment when he repents and the father runs down the road to meet him. That's the gospel. That's the Christian life. So he calls them to repent on that basis, that God is slow to anger and and compassionate, full of mercy and grace, unmerited favor. The people repent, and God's response is one of jealousy and pity. So verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So you need to understand the word jealousy here. It's not, we, we, we kind of have conflated jealousy with envy. That's not what jealousy is. Jealousy is having a deep devotion to something that's yours. So Renee is my wife. I'm, I, I'm jealous for her. She belongs to me, and so I'm jealous for her. If someone else tried to come and take her away from me, it would arouse my jealousy Not because I want what I can't have, but because I want what is mine. She is mine and I am hers because we have covenant with one another. Remember last week, Hosea talked about the fact that God has a covenant with his people. It's like he's married to them. They're his bride. And so when he sees her in distress, his jealousy is aroused. His devotion, his deep covenantal devotion to them is aroused and he has pity on them. He has every right to kick them out, every right to divorce them, 
every right to kick them to the curb, but and yet he sees their repentance and his jealousy is aroused, his pity is mobilized, and we don't have time to go into all of this, um, but his response is beautiful. He says, really, kind of from verse 20 to 27, he talks about the fact that he's going to reverse the curse. He's going he's to take those locusts and withdraw them, right? He's going to reverse the curse. He's going to restore the land where they have been devastated by the locusts. He's going to make the land fruitful again, more, even more fruitful than ever before. And, and he's going to, um, he's going to mercy of mercies, wonder of wonders. He's going to actually come and dwell with his people, verse 27. He's going to reside in their presence and so bring his blessing to them. So, the story of Joel up to this point is really a familiar one. The people of Israel are rebellious and wayward, adulterous. They've turned their backs on God. God sends a prophet to call them back to him. They respond with repentance and lament and grief and wailing. God responds to that with mercy and grace, like over-the-top grace. That's kind of a tautology, right? Over-the-top grace, like grace is over-the-top by its nature. It is unmerited favor. He responds with that kind of love for them. But that's not the whole story because Joel is so intimately saturated in the Bible that he sees what's going on in the here and now, and he records it, but he also sees something bigger. He sees something more profound. He sees something more eternal at work here. He sees something more cosmic. And so the next part of his book, he he writes three poems where he describes what God is going to do, which kind of is an echo of what he's done here, but on on a cosmic scale. And again, we don't have time to go into this, but you might want to write down these three poems in, in chapter 2, 28 to 32, and chapter 3, 1 to 16, and chapter 3, 17 to 21. And he writes these three poems. The first one is about how in the future, God's Spirit is going to dwell in His people. And you might hear that and you're like, yeah, what's, what's the next one? Is it more impressive than that? Because we take it for granted. The If you're a believer, God's Spirit dwells within you. But for these people, Old Covenant people, that was an astonishing thought. God's Spirit came and went in the Old Covenant. It it sort of anointed this or that person, resided in this or that person for this time and for this event. But to think that God's Spirit would dwell in an everlasting way in His people is an overwhelming thought. The idea, and this just makes it all the more true, I think, because it's just like Joel had to get it from God. He never would have come up with it by himself. The idea that God doesn't dwell in temples or churches or cathedrals, that God doesn't dwell in places that are more holy than others. God dwells in the human heart. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That idea was mind-blowing, and it should be mind-blowing for us as well. That if you're a Christian today, you, like, God lives in you? Like, really, not just metaphorically, like, I I hold him in my heart, like I hold my grandma in my heart. No, like, he actually dwells in you, and he's the one calling you to repentance, 
to run to the father instead of running to the fig leaves, right? That that is going on was mind-blowing to Joel, should be mind-blowing to us. But he goes on, not just that, he says, God will confront evil on the earth. He will confront and crush all evil. So there's a time coming when God will do away with everything broken in the world. There will be no more sin or corruption or injustice. That's chapter 3 and verse 1 to 16. And then 17 to 21, he talks about how God is going to renew all creation. He's going to make the world like Eden again. That Eden was, was everything working in perfect harmony with God's very nature. And that the world since then has been broken and fractured and, and out of sync with who God is. But that God is going to renew all things. And we know... We know more than Joel knew. We, know, we knew more than the people of Israel knew. We know, having known Jesus and believed his words, we know that all of these things, all of these promises have their yes in Jesus. All of these promises are realized on account of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, right? He ascended and sent his spirit to dwell in each one of us. He is coming again to confront and crush all that is evil and unjust in the world. And He is coming to recreate all things. He is coming to renew all that there is. So here's the thing, right? If your version of heaven is mainly constituted of like cream cheese commercials, you need to, you need to put that aside. Heaven is not you wearing white and with wings, eating cream cheese, right, and being snarky. That's not what heaven is. You'll be given garments of white, but they will be representative of the sin that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You will be occupying a renewed creation, right, with air and trees and dirt and I don't know, animals and food, the best meat and the best wine, Isaiah says, right? These things will be true for eternity. You will be given a renewed body that cannot die, that cannot sin, that cannot experience heart attack. The new heavens and the new earth, the new Eden that God has promised to renew and recreate for us is paradise in every sense. And all of these things that Joel got a glimpse of, we have a sure and certain hope of. And I don't mean, like when the Bible says we have a sure and certain hope of these things, it's not hope like, I hope my team wins the grand final next year, right? It's not, it's not and I barrack for Essendon, all right? So it's not a very thin hope. This is a sure and certain hope. Not because we're great optimists, but because of the sure and certain victory of the Lord Jesus. So we have great cause for hope. We have great cause for praise and thanksgiving. We're going to do that in just a minute. Praise and thank God for who He is and what He's done for us. Before we do that, I want to pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for Your servant, Joel. I thank you for his faithfulness. 
I thank you for the insight you gave him. I thank you for his bold call to repentance and his wonderful vision of your victory over Satan, sin, and death. And Lord, we stand with him as those who hope for these things, who are assured of these things, who yearn for these things. We know that the world is not as it should be, but we know that you are coming to make all things new. And so in the meantime, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, that great day of the Lord, where you'll make all things right. In the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would lead us into ongoing repentance of sin, prayer and fasting for your mercy and grace, a daily imitation of our Lord Jesus. Lord, may you enable us to make all of life all about him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.